politically entertaining, your clip notes to American politics. And now your host, now, Frank we get started, Frank, I just want to let the listeners know how much I love y'all, man. Because right now, the Miami Heat are playing. It's game four of the playoffs. But you know I love y'all, and I'm here for y'all. So we're going to do this thing. Um, we got the interview with Nicole Spears coming up later. We're going to talk about... Um, how the GOP is agreeing with President Obama on something, which is, uh, if you follow politics at all, that's shocking. And we got a press tribute for you at the end of the show. Of course, Prince uh, passed away last week. Uh, the other big news, Frank, Harriet Tubman, she is replacing Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill, and some people are... <laughs> Not happy about it, but uh, Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu announced that it happened in 2020. Originally, it was supposed to be on the $10 bill, but um, she's going to be on the $20 bill. Do you have any feelings one way or the other on that? Personally, I, I like it. You know, I'm not. I'm actually not big into pol- uh, shows of political, I guess, correctness in, in so many ways. But I don't even feel. I feel like this is a huge. Uh, a huge thing, a huge shift, because especially with the idea that some textbooks for our children now have been have been altered, and we and, and you'll hear about some of this later in interviews, like that some of this, you know, the fact that slavery has been minimized and and, and not saying I'm not here to, to to go on a race rant or anything like that, but I think it's important to know that this woman risked her life to help other African Americans. Uh, get their freedom. They were brought here against their will, and they, they were able to escape. And she was part of that. And and her and her place is etched in history. And she's a noble person. It's, it's not like putting somebody who could run into a scandal. She, she's scandal free. There's nothing that's going to come out about Harriet Tubman. She doesn't have an Instagram. She doesn't have a Twitter. She's uh, you know a, a great iconic figure. There's nothing wrong with having her on on the twenty dollars bill. I think it's a great gesture. And I think it's a symbolic gesture too because. You know, when you look at the money, certainly as, as to me as an African American, you're just you know you're used to saying, okay, well I guess you got to be an old dead white guy uh, to be on on the money. And it's not just presidents. I know some people had come out and said, oh well, only presidents are on the money. And I was like, well, you don't obviously don't know that Benjamin Franklin is not a pre- was not a president, you know, so, and, and so there's and Alexander Hamilton was not a president. So there's there's you know already a precedent for non presidents to be on the money. That there there was a I heard that too, like, oh, only presidents should be on money. Well, you know, you just missed the, you know, Benjamin Franklin. When, when was he the president? And when was Alexander Hamilton the president? So those are things that people need to keep in mind. And I just think it's a great show that, you know, a woman who was oppressed, uh, who, who who was liberated now, can her story can be told, and it's just good. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And for anybody who doesn't want a twenty, you can get four fives, you can get two tens, you can get twenty ones, you can get. 2,000, 20,000 pennies, whatever the hell you want to do. It doesn't, you know, don't get a 20 if you don't want it, but I, I'll keep a couple. Um, I actually, I was I was happy about it. Um, I, I especially enjoyed some of the people who it, it made upset. But, Frank, I'm not sure if you saw this already, but I wanted to read it to you. Uh, Aunt B, the, co-st- the co-host of uh, The Wine Down with Erica Perkins, she had a very different uh, take on it. You know, I like different. I like interesting. And this is something that she wrote when the news of Harry Tubman on the $20 bill broke out. Quote, we're replacing the president with a slave emancipate black people from financial slavery. I'm willing to bet a whole stack 
of that weird-looking new money that Harriet Tubman would not want to be on the same currency that black people are killing over, exchanging for drugs, slapping on the posterior strippers, and starving because they lack it. This country is so funny. Put us, she got, she has us in quotes, on the same money we never, we could never buy and an indictment for a cop killing an unarmed black man with. She goes on to say, uh, this is kind of funny at the end, counting down to the ignorant rap lyrics used clever Tubman innuendos along with CNN war on drugs stories showing images of black people dope and stacks of Tubmans. Um, I thought that was a different and very uh, interesting take, and she got some mixed reactions on that post. Uh, before we move on, actually, too, uh, we're going to talk race relations in a second. I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond or comment on it. And B, man. And, you know, I'm going to take this, this chance right now to and B, and EP. I ain't been on the show. Um, and, that, and that's and that's just something else. And I, you know, you can put a Tubman or a Jackson or whatever, or Frank or whatever you want on that. But with that being said, I don't think there's anything. I think her opinion is is perfectly valid, uh, and I think my opinion is perfectly valid. I don't think you have to agree on everything. I, I don't agree, you know, that while putting her on the money certainly will not fix the, the problems that are happening. It certainly does not, it doesn't create the, it doesn't create a problem by her being on the money. It's like there's two different issues here. We have a problem, uh, you know, with, with, she mentioned, you know, strippers and she mentioned, you know, killing people and stuff like that. That's going to continue whether or not there is, you know, the money is monopoly money or whatever the currency is people kill each other for. You know, people kill each other for whatever uh, they, they deem to be, uh, you know, the currency, whatever that would be. Um, you know, we've, we've seen movies where money is worthless and people are killing people over food or whatever it is. I mean, I know you watch uh, The Walking Dead. I have not, do not watch The Walking Dead, but I can imagine that just in a post-apocalyptic world, sometimes money is not the most important thing. People will kill over whatever they feel like is the most important thing. So with that being said, I don't think that the idea of putting Harry Tubman on the money is going to glorify anything. Yeah, there's going to be some clever rap songs, but, you know, people did that too. You know, people did that when the president was, you know, President Obama was, was sworn in. There was, you know, my president is black. There's different songs. People are going to do what they do because that's what artists do. Um, but, I, you know, I don't, I don't, let's celebrate a moment, you know, and sometimes, I think sometimes, you know, I get it. I do understand the other side of it, but, you know, I think it's a celebration that she's on the money, that she's recognized for who she was, what she was, and what she was able to accomplish. And now everybody, whether they like it or not, she's on the currency. She's on the money. A black woman is on the money. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I have nothing, you know, as a father of a daughter, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to see that happen and see that happen. So I don't have anything negative to say about it. And, and B, when you have me on your show, we can discuss this again. We love Aunt B, and I actually will be breaking her up on a different topic next week. Uh, but for now, Frank, um, you listened to the last couple of months of Donald Trump's uh, candidacy and the things he said, and it's been some racially tinged things. And you think about 30, was it, no, 21 years ago, you had the whole OJ thing. And I was talking to some people who happened to come up because ESPN, they're getting ready to do a, uh, a week-long 30 for 30 uh, movie on the whole OJ thing. And it's going to reveal some things that have never been told before. But without getting into that, 
I just remember the whole the, the dynamic of the, the racial divide when that verdict came out. It, it really it really revealed the division in this country. And um, I spoke to I spoke to a white friend and asked him what was his re- reaction and how did he feel about you know black people's reaction during the time. And he was honest. He was like, you know, it was, he it kind of made him sick. He didn't like it or what have you. I know what my reaction was, Frank. Um, I was in ninth grade. I was young, and I'm not gonna lie. I mean, I have to admit, I was I was fist pumping. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we won, which is ironic because OJ, for for the most part, wanted nothing to do with the black community overall, and for us to be really celebrating him beating that trial was ironic. But uh, we've never talked about this before. What was your reaction uh, during that verdict? I think it was a similar to, to yours. I, I think that the idea that a black man, even when presented with the evidence, may have been guilty was a certain. There's a certain, um, you know, in the in the black community, certainly there's a certain feeling like when 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 one of your own is being oppressed, and even though it was done publicly, and especially with I think I mean people also forget about Mark Furman and how that case ended up really turning with with you know his his meddling basically in the investigation. And so that was another thing, like even it was also like, well, even if he did it, this guy was, there was still a, you know, a, a white guy, you know, or, you know, a, a other, you know, person of not of color trying to, you know, oppress this guy. So it was like, here we go again, you know. So it, I, I think from that standpoint, it, it felt good from a standpoint of, wow, you know, a black man beat the system that many white people have beaten when they were guilty. So I think it was kind of like one of those things where, well, he might have been guilty, but, hey, finally it just doesn't work for us. Hey, you know, it's kind of like the Nino, you know, at the end of uh, New Jack City when Nino Brown's like, hey, it's American, old American justice system. And it's kind of like that. It's kind of like everybody knew Nino Brown, you know, in that movie was definitely a bad guy, but, you know, they didn't have the evidence, obviously, at the time to, to convict him. Obviously, that's the movie. But what I'm saying is that same sentiment existed like, hey, you know, O.J., you know, people, like you said, he wasn't necessarily endeared to the black community. He had obviously, you know, uh, divorced his first wife who was, you know, African-American, and obviously Nicole Brown Simpson was was not. And I don't think there's, that's really the issue, but I just I just think that when when black the black community saw that O.J. got off, they were like, awesome. You know, the same as the system that allowed the, the men that killed Emmett Till, the men, you know, that did any other number of things, and... And, you know, I don't want to get into this and make it, you know, a long thing. But, I mean, people, you understand what I'm saying. And, and so it's just that feeling like, oh, we got one. You know, we got one. You know, there's hundreds of other things that, you know, we didn't get, you know, or that haven't happened, that people haven't been brought to justice for things that were done. So just this one time, you know, a, a black man got off, you know, for doing something. And, and this is all around the same time as, you know, Rodney King had happened as well. You know, that, I was also... Uh, around this time as well in the in the 90s um i do believe oj was a, a little bit after that the rodney king you know but i'm just saying there was a lot of tension at that time especially you know out there in california so i think that there was a certain feeling of vindication even if oj even if the people thought oj was guilty i think a lot of people felt oj was guilty but it wasn't about his guilt it was about the vindication of the justice system for the black man and i think that's a lot of black people share that sentiment uh, and whether or not that's right or wrong, I can't tell you. I can't tell you how to feel about that. You know, he wasn't convicted, and it was what it was. And, and, and like you said, we won. 
you know, that felt like felt like a victory. So um, it was just, you know, it's an interesting topic, and I'd love to hear, you know, our listeners respond uh, to that on Facebook, you know, sh- you know, share your opinion of how you felt when O.J. Uh, was, was announced he was not guilty. If you fast forward today and you look at um, Black Lives Matter and you look at how Obama has been criticized where you got a member of Congress calling him a liar during a joint session of Congress, and as I said earlier with the things Trump has said, do you think uh, race relations have gotten better, worse, or are they pretty much the same since that trial? Whew. You know, that's a that's a, such a tough question because, you know, have you ever seen the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal? I have not. I have not. It's a great movie to watch, but but basically, I think there's you made a, you made a great statement. It's something you should also, uh, if you haven't heard this, uh, listeners, if this is your first time listening, go back and listen to the episode where Byron goes on a, an amazing Trump rant. It's not the kind of angry rant that you think it was, but it's very educa- educated, um, factual rant. Uh, you can find that on iTunes, but I think you made a very important point. You said the media, and, and the media has a huge way of portraying uh, racial divides, racial problems. And I don't, I'm not saying they don't exist, because I do believe, I certainly believe that there are racist people and they do exist. But we also have to look at the fact that we have a, a, an African-American president. And I'm not saying that settles everything, because I don't believe it does. But what I'm saying is, obviously, there is some shift in the country where, Black people are all not seen a certain way because there's no way that President Obama would have been elected to office elected twice, when, you know, without, you know, some support from people who are non-black. There's black people are only about 12, 13 percent of the country, so it's not like we as black people can vote in a candidate on our own. So I think that certainly there is what what we we have, may have seen over the last 20 years, 15, 20, 25 years, you know, since these things is more of of a um, there's more of a there's not necessarily a divide, but what what you see is it's more pronounced because of the way the media portrays it. I think that the way things were in the South, the way things have always been in the South. You know, I, if you look at the states that are blue and red, they're still pretty much the same, right? So I mean, pretty much people pretty much feel the same. I just think that there's more um, between the media and social media. There's more. There's easier ways for people to express hateful things, and that's the the crazy thing about social media. Is that's what people do best. They express hateful things. And, you know, let's say 20 years ago, um, you know, things were happening or, you know, we talked about O.J. 20, 25 years ago and and Rodney King and the L.A. riots. We don't imagine how what people would have said if this had been on social media. And now fast forward and look at what people said during Ferguson riots. uh, I won't say riots, but Ferguson protests that turned into riots or during the Freddie Gray protests that turned into riots. And you see the things that people wrote and said. You see, that's the difference. The thing is, people may have thought these things, and they just kind of went away. It was like, okay, yeah, this, this is this and that. Now it's so pronounced, and it feels so divisive because now you know what everybody's thinking. We'll talk to uh, Nicole Spears in a few minutes. She is the uh, senior advisor and program director of Taking Over My Future. Me and Frank will also discuss Prince later on. Sorry about that, folks. Um there is a bill current that right, that the Republicans and President Obama actually are agreeing on. Uh, they're calling it the Saudi Arabia 9/11 bill, and what it's what it's supposed to do is it's going to allow uh, the families of victims of 9/11 to hold the Saudi government uh, accountable, responsible for 9/11. If you recall, it's 14 or either 15, 14 or 15 
of the 19 hijackers on 9-11 were Saudis. And this bill would allow the victims to sue. Now, the opposition is, if we do this, then it'll open up, you know, people that we have in different areas of the world um, to be sued as well. So it can, like, it can backfire on us. Uh, many of the Republicans and President Obama are against this bill. Uh, you have some, some Democrats in Congress that are for it. So you have the, uh, the rare, the rare predicament where Republicans and, uh, the White House, the White House press secretary went as far as to somewhat praise Republicans for, for standing up against this bill. Um, <laughs> are you surprised by this at all? Uh, have you heard anything about this? I am, I am not familiar with the bill, and, and that, again, that's why you're the, you know, the, the main host of the show. That sometimes I, I lose track of these things, but I can't disagree. I, I, I'm glad that there is some reason because I, I don't think that, based on what you said about the bill, that this is a a very good idea. Um, it's slip as, as, I've, as I've said on many other shows, a slippery slope. It's like, where does this end? How does this? How do you? How do you even do this? You know, and, and then how do you do this reliably? And then what happens the next time something happens? And what if somebody wants to do that to the American government about something that we did uh, that we don't necessarily – we're not necessarily aware of everything that's happened in the world? Uh, you know, obviously 9-11 is a very, very public event, and it's one of the, you know, most tragic things. Probably, probably for our generation, you know, you know, maybe our grandparents, uh, you know, if, if they, they were there for, you know, Pearl Harbor, um, that was their thing for their generation. But for us, 9-11 is something everybody remembers where they were. And I think that, you know, to, to open up that wound and, and, and do that, I just don't think that's the right thing, the right way. I just, I just don't, because where, like you said, like, like you said, where does, where does this end? How, what, what other, what other conflict can, can, can be brought up? Is, is, it, is there any immunity? You know, like what, what is the, what is the end goal of this? Well, the Saudis, the Saudis have actually threatened. They they own about seven hundred and fifty million of our assets. They've threatened to sell those off, which could hurt our economy. Um, the nine eleven commission report that came out after nine eleven, there are actually twenty eight pages of it that have never been released, and it's been said that uh, in those twenty eight pages, it actually implicates some ranking Saudi officials that had a hand in it. Um, but again, like I said, you know, it can open us up for nations to to blame us for things. So I don't think it'll get anywhere uh, because, at the very least, the, the president can veto it. So, and he's against it. But I just thought it was interesting that Republicans and, and Obama agreeing on the same thing for a change. Um, let's we we sat down and talked with Nicole Spears, and let's. Uh, Let's have a listen to what she had to say. I think you'll find it interesting and maybe controversial. She certainly was worried about that. But take a listen, and we'll give you our thoughts on the other end. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. This week's guest is an advocate for providing a bright future for today's youth. She's a senior advisor and program director for Taking Over My Future. You can visit takingovermyfuture.com for more information. 
Miss Nicole Spears, how are you doing today, ma'am? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. We want to thank you for joining us on Politically Entertaining. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk to you particularly because graduations are coming up in the next couple of months, and uh, I see that you guys are taking over my future. Or One of your missions is pretty much to provide students for with a uh, stable future going forward. My question is, why is that so important to you? Because a lot of people say that, but they never actually really do anything to try to help. So why why is that so important to you? Well, this whole program started initially when my oldest daughter, who's now attending JSU and pre-med, her senior year in high school, I pressed her for, for college funding, her scholarship, making sure she's prepared for whatever the outcome was going to be after high school. And what I began to notice is a lot of her peers were completely lost. They had no idea as to what they were going to do, what they wanted to do, and these are seniors. So, you know, it kind of scared me a little bit. Um, so I, that's when I decided to say, okay, well, let me put together a program so I can help our youth um, do something with their lives or at least be better prepared for post-educational success. And that's pretty much how the program started. Um, I'm very concerned about um, our children. Um, they're not getting the things that they're needing after graduation. A lot of them are not graduating. A lot of them don't even know why they should graduate. They don't have anything to look forward to. So with the program, we have open forums in the program to where we discuss political views. We discuss things that are going on in this world that is maybe not associated with politics, just so they can become more aware of what's going on around them to give them a reason to want to do better for themselves. And that's how the program initially got started. Now, I remember when I was in high school, we had uh, counselors that would help you with that sort of thing. So yeah. do, they no, do the schools no longer have counselors, or do they just have – they don't have the resources to help as many students as possible? Well, that's a great question. Um, I don't know about – well, I do know they do have counselors, but I don't know exactly what the roles are anymore. Um, I am definitely out of touch with that. Um, so I don't know. I have had a few of the – um, high school kids tell me that they don't even know their counselor's name. I don't know if that's the student's fault or if that's the counselor's fault. But we run into a lot of that. Um, I am familiar with some of the counselors where they will have their favorites, where they'll pick the children who they want to help or who they're determined to help. And so you have these other children who are left out. But, of course, that's a problem because a lot of the parents want to help but don't even know what questions to ask. And if you don't have people reaching out, to you to try to assist you, then what do you do where you're left behind? So I do know that that is an issue where some counselors will gravitate to certain children and help those and won't reach out to others. I can also say that, in my opinion, some of these schools are extremely large. Like we have two or three local schools here in Mobile where they're so large, the senior class are large, and you have one counselor. That's impossible for that counselor to reach every senior that's in that class that's graduating to get them to figure out what's going on after graduation. So that's something you have to think about. How do you reach every child to give them an opportunity to see exactly what they want to do after graduation? That's impossible for uh, a Murphy High School counselor to do or a Baker High School counselor to do. She needs help. He or she needs help. So these are things you have to consider 
when you're getting ready to send your child off to wherever they're going? Again, the website is takingovermyfuture.com. We're talking to Nicole Spears. Uh, during the, uh, I guess, there was a student at Missouri University that went on a hunger strike, and in response, their football team decided to, uh, they said they wasn't going to play a game until the president was let go because they felt like the university wasn't handling racial complaints on campus properly. Um, now, you are an advocate for uh, minorities attending HBCUs, historically black college universities. What do you think is the advantage of, uh, you know, a young black male or female attending an HBCU versus uh, one of the more popular universities? Well, here's my thing, and um, a lot of people may, you know, get offended by it, but here's my thought process on that. As a black woman born and raised in the home of black parents, I we had to learn about ourselves. And a lot of the things in the Western civilization as far as the culture and the way they teach our children, we're missing a lot. So today, I think I've even read in today's history books, they don't even use the word slavery anymore. They use labors. They're trying to dress everything up. So the reason why I fully support HBCUs is because it is for us. We do learn who we are. We do adapt and learn a whole lot more about everything once we become, once we're put in that type of environment. Whereas if we're going to PWI, you can't ever really relax. Well, at least I could. I can't relax. I've known where people, where blacks will go to PWI, and they look for black people. That is the craziest thing in the world to me. You don't want to go to an HBCU to be around your own culture, but as soon as you go to PWI, you look for black people. Another thing that I've always said, and, again, these are just my opinions, is once you go to an HBCU, when the recruiters for jobs come to HBCUs, they're looking for you. When recruiters go to PWIs, they're not looking for you. They're looking for exactly why they're there. So that's something else you need to take into consideration. As far as the sports arena, I do not understand why. Well, I've been told that black athletes go to PWIs because they want to get seen, they want an opportunity. And I've also always asked the question, well, won't the media follow the athlete? Like if a big athlete or a top-rated athlete decides to go to an HBCU, won't the media follow the athlete? You know, is it all about the school? Because in my opinion, if you take football away from some of these big universities like University of Alabama, would Alabama be such a big school? And then you have to think about, well, who's playing the football? It's predominantly black students. So things like that I think we take away from our own, that if a lot of these students will start attending these HBCUs with a dynamic change. I don't know, but I think it's worth a try. You, you brought up the, uh, the sports topic. There is a uh, great book. I'm not sure if you read it. It's by William Roden. It's called $40 Million Slaves. He talks and speaks exactly about what you just said, and it would take, it would take more than just one athlete choosing to go to an HBCU. It would, yes, it would, take it would have to be a movement. Yes, yes, but mm-hmm. I, I, for anybody that's listening that agrees with Nicole, I encourage you to check out that book. It speaks exactly to that. Matter of fact, Nicole, we may have you back on the show just to discuss that topic because that's a whole, 
different conversation that will take it is a and lot it's of controversial time. you know i've reached out actually to some some hbcu summer pro football graduates mm-hmm. i don't know it's a it's an arena that they won't touch i don't i don't understand that but i figured if i can get the right group of coaches and staff that will back me to get to speak to some of these um colleges and some of these um parents to at least let them know what are the odds of them getting to where they need to be. Now, I have had conversations with some some men that tells me, well, some of the, the athletes that are not as good, they do get an opportunity to go pro because they're at an SEC. Well, again, it has to be a movement-type situation where we all start attending the HBCUs. The government doesn't put the proper funding in HBCUs anymore, and these other schools are just as public as these HBCUs, but we're lacking the resources that we need. You know, a lot of people will complain about where the dorms are, are bad. Well, if we get the proper funding or we can transfer the football and get more funding from that source, we will begin to be able to do things like that. But right now we have to focus on the teachers. I hear parents saying, oh, I would never send my child to HBCU. And it it almost makes my neck swivel. I, I don't understand that to save my life. You know, I hear people say, well, it will look better on my resume if I go to PWIs and I would an HBCU. You. I I don't know where the reasoning is coming from or why are we bashing our own, but I'm sure that some people have had bad experiences with PWI. We just don't hear about it. But as soon as someone goes to an HBCU, let's say in Alabama State, and have a bad experience, they bash the entire line of all HBCUs as if they're the plague. I don't understand why we do that. <laughs> it, it's, it's almost laughable because we do that. But I will always support um, HBCU. One of my students was um, trying to attend the PWI for that very reason. And fortunately, I know his mom very well. We spoke about it. He is now going to Fairview University on a full-ride scholarship. That was the best decision he said he's ever made. So we just have to educate our students. I talked to a couple of students when we took them to Tuskegee two weeks ago, me and Christopher Scott, and we ended up having a powwow about HBCUs. One of the students was planning on attending Auburn. I think he's changed his mind about that completely because they just don't know. So you can't blame the students for not knowing if we are not educating them about what we have. You know, you think about the Negro League. Why do we even start the Negro League? Because we won't even allow to play football for these PWIs. So now why do we feel like we have to attend these PWIs to be, to feel like we've reached whatever it is that we're trying to reach? You know, why do we have to go outside of who we are? to feel like we are doing better because we're now mingling with another race. I don't I don't understand that. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is because you make people think and that was a that was definitely a fantastic uh some fantastic points and if you agree or disagree you have to admit she is making you think. Uh, Nicole, we have we have had conversations in the past on uh problems facing our youth and at times we have disagreed uh, but I do acknowledge that there are a lot of people that agree with your point of view, and I wanted you to share it as far as what do you think are the causes for the problems with our youth today? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> loaded question. <laughs> it is loaded. But, you know, I'm controversial. You know, I lose, I lose friends on social media on a regular basis because of my point of view. But it's okay because I do believe in, you know, I believe in what I believe in. I do a lot of reading. 
So I'm a very logical person. I've always been logical. So when I come up with my conclusion as to why I feel a certain way, it's usually because I have something to back that up. I'm not just pulling things out of the air. So my experience with these children now that are lost, if it's okay to use that word, well, everyone says it starts at home. Okay, I do, I got that. I agree with that. But when we say that, everything stops. No solution is formed once we decide that it starts from home. Well, now that I'm so deep off in the matrix of trying to assist children, parents need just as much help now as these children do. You know, I can go all the way back to why are these areas considered to be poverty? You know, why do projects even do they exist? You know, who put the drugs in these communities? Why is it that the majority of the black people, you know, well, that's not true either. But why is a lot of the black people are the ones struggling? You know, what are we lashing out on? Well, you have to look at all those things to come up with a sound conclusion. So that's why another reason why the program exists, another reason why I want to start a program called the Million Dollar um, Program, not the Million Dollar, sorry, the, the Six-Figure Program, where I have kids join the program and we discuss job opportunities. But I think a lot of the reasoning is these children are lost because the parents don't know. Some of the parents know, but I think majority of it is the parents just do not know. I do believe in what we call PTSD, which is my definition of post-traumatic slave disorder. I truly believe that that exists. If you decide to check on that and check on what that actually is, we experience that on a daily basis in our families, in our culture, in our neighborhoods, and it's a chain reaction. It's something that we just pass down. It's generational. And I think the first step is we have to acknowledge that. Once we acknowledge that, and stop pointing fingers and demeaning parents and understand that these parents need our help as well, then we begin to find better solutions as to how do we fix this. And I tend, I reach out to parents sometimes, but not often. I think you can get to the children quicker than you can get to the parents because children are like sponges. Once you start talking to them about something that they're not familiar with, they gravitate to you. Again, another instance, when we were in Tuskegee, I started out having a conversation about job opportunities with one child. It ended up being 12 children around me Googling, asking questions. Miss Beard, what is this? They had no idea. And it was overwhelming to know that all these children had never heard of these things before. They, you know, we as adults tend to push becoming a lawyer or a doctor. Well, you give them a sense of false hope because everyone is not going to be a lawyer or a doctor. Those are not the only jobs that make six figures. So once we started Googling six-figure incomes and six-figure jobs, they were amazed. They had no idea. So you give them a sense of hope by letting them know being a doctor and a lawyer is not the only way. There are other things we can be doing where we can actually build wealth and take care of our families and not be doctors and lawyers and still be okay. So that was in, that ended up being a 45-minute conversation, and the only reason it stopped is because we had to leave. So we're going to continue that eventually. We're trying to find a place where we can have a team forum where we can discuss certain things and, and have people ask questions about things that they're not familiar with, some things that they may even not want to ask parents with. I do come up with, with a disclaimer. Most people who know me know that because if a child asks me anything, I'm going to give them my truth. I feel like as an adult, if I don't give them their truth, they're going to get it from the street. And if they're asking me and they bypass their parents for whatever reason, then I feel like as my job I should give them their truth, and I'm going to. So I typically let parents know that. I am a very unorthodox type of teacher, if that's what you want to call me. But 
we have to dig deep into really what the issue is. And when people say it starts at home, yeah, that's true. But that's kind of an excuse for us to stop trying to fix the solution. So we have to try to fix the solution. Um, and that's, that's where I am on that. You know, a lot of people don't like it, but that's how I feel. Now, I hesitate to say that uh, today's youth are any worse than youth of the past. Uh, you know, a long time ago you had the Menendez brothers who killed their parents. Statistically, crime has gotten, uh, has gotten less since the uh, early 90s. And mm-hmm. uh, I think a lot of times the media definitely promotes a lot of things that the youth do. I remember a few years ago there was this thing called a knockout game, and they were calling it an epidemic. Yeah, I remember that. Like, it was like two cases total. And, but they kept playing it on loop over and over and over, and now you don't even hear anything mm-hmm. about it. So, right. do, you, do you agree or disagree that? Do you agree that today's youth, or do you think they're worse or the same as youth of the past? I think they're a little bit worse, but not much. The difference, of course, is social media. You know, yeah. what, the bad things we did, we didn't record it. <laughs> right. So that kind of saved us. So that's it's really not as bad, like you say. That's why I do agree. The only difference is we didn't carry guns back in those days, and we have a lot of children carrying guns or BB guns or whatever you want to call it now, you know, to survive, as they said. I've heard children say, well, if I don't carry my gun, I'm going to get killed. You know, I've heard all kinds of things from the children as to why they mimic or why they do the things they do because they're generally in fear of their life. So, yeah, to a sense, I do agree that they're not really as bad because a lot of the children who are getting killed or getting hurt, they don't want that. I'm going to give you an instance. Um, again, me being naive with a lot of things, I took my daughter to school um, when she attended an, an, a high school. I dropped her off. A lot of the kids were walking towards the the parking lot. And I said, what's going on? She's like, oh, they're probably getting ready to fight. She had become so immune to the fighting because it happened on a regular basis. So they came and they got in front of my car, and five of the guys started fighting like savages. It was horrible. So I got out of the car, and I commenced to trying to pull them apart. Let me tell you what these guys said to me. Now, you would think when you're angry and you're calling these guys the N-word and cussing them out, I got in between two of the guys and pulled them apart. Both of those young men looked at me and said, ma'am, you got to move out the way, ma'am. Ma'am, you have to move. At that instance, I knew that these children don't want to be in the situation they're in. Right. Even in the midst of fighting, they were respectful to me. That brought tears to my eyes because now these children are being forced to do things that they really don't want to do. They want a way. They want a better way. They want to know what to do to get out of their current situation, but they don't have anyone that they can speak with to do that. So that's where I come in. Kistra Scott also has given her number out to a lot of the youth to assist, you know, them in any way they can. I've spoken to one child to where I wanted to prep him for the ACT and give him the money needed to use someone to study for the ACT. He later responded and sent me two pictures and said he can't because he's raising two girls. He's 17. Why is he raising two girls? These are his sisters. So these are the true issues that we're dealing with that no one is digging deep to understand that a lot of these children are going through what they're going through because they really don't have a choice. They're having to be adults too soon. So a lot of these things, I, I'm, it's like an aha moment for me. Because in the past, I used to be one to say, 
oh, they said get out there behind and do this. Or, but now that I'm in the matrix, you would never hear me say that. I used to be one that would say, all these people abusing welfare, they're on food stamps, and they're driving these nice cars. You can't pay me to say that now. With the way the politics are and we have all these people in Congress abusing funds and working only five months out the month making all this money, and I, I can care less about these people using food stamps. Take the food stamps. If that's, that's what they're doing compared to all the corruption going on in Congress, I can care less about the poverty using food stamps and abusing it. That's, that's something that I really should not be concerned about, and that's all they're getting out of it. I made a point. So my on views have completely changed. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was I was going to say I made that point on one of the past episodes uh, about how people are worried about people on food stamps. Yet, in that particular case, the government spent eighty six million dollars on a plane that never even flew. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Thank you. So, These are things that a lot of people don't know. They're not reading about it. So now that I'm doing all this reading and just about what you just said. I'm like, really? This is what we're doing with money, but we want to put people in jail who want to feed their children? You know, because they, everybody wants a better life. So if you're giving me $500 in food stamps that allow me to, to experience something nice in life, like a nice car, then so be it. It's a car. I'm not going off trying to buy an $86 million plane and not do anything with it. <laughs> so I agree with you totally on that. So my views have completely changed. When it comes to abuse with what they say, the poverty, when we abuse food stamps or Medicaid or whatever it is that we're abusing, it does not compare to what the government has done with funds from us, from taxpayers. So I, I don't have a problem with things like that anymore. So my views have completely changed now that I'm doing so much more reading outside of, you know, what we were told to read or, or what we were taught to read, you know? Right. I, uh, I'm constantly evolving my thinking as well. We're talking to Nicole Spears, again, uh, program director and senior advisor for Taking Over My Future. Visit takingovermyfuture.com for more information. We're going to get you out of here in a moment, Nicole, but um, you are working on a book currently, and I want to know, you can say no, but I just want to know if you wanted to share what it would be about and what you hope people will get from it. Oh, definitely. Um, I, it's untitled as of, as of now. Um, I'm not sure what I want to name it, but the book will be basically about, you know, we always say there's no guide to raising children. There's no book that comes with raising children. Well, I'm going to create our first guide. Okay. <laughs> um, it's going to be basic. You know, I think I've done fairly well with my children. Um, I know it's only two children out of all the children in the world. But I think if we learn to instill the basic common sense that we can do better with our kids. So it's going to basically just, there. it will be sectional. So you can always go back to it. It will be considered a guide. Again, I have to put my disclaimer out there. I am very unorthodox. So the way I've raised my children, some people may grab their pearls or they may gasp for air for some of the things that are in the book. But I am as real as it gets when it comes to raising children. And when I'm doing everything out of love, I think that's the best way to be. So the book talks about, you know, from even having sex to why are you even in that situation. You know, it even goes on to, we talk about toddler um, ages, we talk about middle school, high school. We Everything is broken down, so you can always go back to those sections to kind of assist you with these issues that you may have with your child that you're not even aware of. So 
I think it's going to be a very good book. My book coach, she's very excited about it, where she's supposed to actually be editing it for me. When she sends what I write back, she's just pretty much cheering me on. She's very excited about some of the things that I put in the book that even, you know, with her with children, she never thought of, that she's learning from. So I'm very excited about the book. I think it's going to really teach people some things. Um that they never thought to, to do or even try with their children. And what's further is basics. Like I said, it's a basic. There's nothing that's going into too much detail. I give people examples of what I've done with my children or what I've said or done to others where they've learned something from it. But I think it's going to be a great book. I'm very excited about it. I hope to have it done by the fall of this year. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on Politically Entertaining. Thank you so very much for having me. I want to thank Nicole Spears for joining us on Politically Entertaining. Uh, definitely appreciate her time. Interesting uh, thoughts and opinions, Frank, on, on a variety of uh, issues. The thing that I wish I had more time to discuss with her was the whole black athletes thing and um, <laughs> how we disagree on the, the problems of our youth. Uh, she... She kind of, you know, included what I think are the problems, but uh, she goes further into other things. But uh, I always, you know, I like, like I said earlier with Aunt B, I like different. I like interesting. Nicole is that, and uh, she's she's certainly a, a wonderful person, and I really enjoy talking to her. You were not able to be there for the interview, so wanted to get your thoughts on it first. Wow. I mean, first of all, let me, let me just say, Nicole, that was – you're, you know, in the words of uh, Birdman, much respect uh, to you. For those who have seen that, what you've seen that meme floating around, uh, all respect to you. But in all seriousness, I mean, she brought up a lot of interesting topics, um, a lot of things that are, you know, make people uncomfortable. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I wanted to certainly just address first was the, the, the HBCU uh, black athlete. I mean, that's that's a great, great point of discussion. Uh, you know, and, and, and it, it, it begs the question, why do, if this black athlete is, uh, you know, you brought up uh, the Missouri football team, and the, the black the black athlete makes up college football, especially college football is, is the thing. I know college basketball is exciting, and people love March Madness, but college, college football is so big, it realigns conferences. For those who, you know, aren't really familiar with sports, in the last 20 years, um, the conferences like the Big East, ACC, Big Ten have all realigned in the name of college football to get more money. You know, so college football is big, and a lot of the players playing college football are black. Certainly, uh, you know many of them you've seen it throughout the years, from Reggie Bush to Vince Young to Cam Newton, you know, guys like that, different teams who have been successful. Um, these, these guys headline teams, they headline programs. And, and so with that in mind, it would be amazing to see a shift in those athletes, I think the crazy, the, the toughest thing about it um, initially is obviously the facilities because we, the facilities and the funding of HPC, it would take a while, it would take a huge paradigm shift to, to could happen, could happen, but I don't know that the impetus is really there because for the athlete, they're like, well, I want to get somewhere, have good training and make money and go to HBCU and being a trendsetter doesn't necessarily put them on the path to do that initially. Now, it doesn't mean that it can't happen over time, but that first class of people that do it, they're not going to necessarily reap the benefit. And so do we have a generation of people that's willing, athletes that are willing to do that, to take a step back and say, you know what, we're going to go to a lesser school, less facilities, 
to change the culture and promote HBCUs. Um, you know, one of the things that Nicole said, and I had to get this, and I'm guessing PWI is predominantly white white institution. Um, yes, I, I, I okay. was going to let the listeners <laughs> because, <laughs> because I heard that, and I was like, I'm like, P, PWI, what? And and so, you know, I actually went to a PWI. I went to University of Miami, and, and honestly, I, I don't agree with, with – I don't I don't disagree with if you want to go to HCCU, I think that's great. But I, I feel like I had a great experience at a PWI as an African-American, and it wasn't um, anything. It was just because, you know, I, I enjoyed – um, being being around a lot of other people and, and, and other cultures, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being around, um, you know, black culture. I mean, I'm married to a black woman. You know, most of my, you know, a lot of my good friends are black. I also have other friends that are white. I think that diversity is a huge part of, 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 of to me, for to be successful as an African American because the world and business is so diverse. You have to be able to converse with other people. And I'm not saying that you can't get that at ACCU, but I think that. We do definitely have a little bit of difference of opinion there, but certainly, you know, I think it was a great conversation. I'd love to have her back on uh, just, just to maybe talk about some of the different ideas she had. I do like the whole, you know, the idea of one of the things that I'm spot on with her is certainly the getting ready uh, for college or, or not just college, but getting ready and planning your future post-high school. I think too many times you come in lax in high school and you think, oh, you know, I'm just here and I'll go and do something. It's a it's a big step to go to high school, and I think that sometimes you know we kind of overlook it because we think oh you know you're just young you're just a teenager but honestly by the time you're in high at the end of high school there's a lot of decisions to be made you're old enough certainly if you're a man you're old enough to go into to war you know in an army you're old enough to vote I mean there are things that you know it seems like you just end up in, in the high school and you're like whoa I'm not really prepared and I think that her program seems like it has a lot of that and some of the things she mentioned about the counselors and and not being you know I'm thinking. The guys' counselors are really not equipped to handle all these students, and so the things that she's doing to me, I mean, it's it's a great, great thing. And so, like I said, I just want to applaud her. You know, I didn't agree with everything she said, but you know, she had passion. And anybody who's doing making a difference having passion, you can't be but so upset at what they say because you know what she's backing up. What she said. A lot of people will get on Facebook and disagree with her, but they're not getting up and doing what she's doing. So, um, all all respect to her uh, for that. The, the website is takingovermyfuture.com. Please check that out again. Thank you, Nicole. And just I want to let the listeners know she's not against predominantly white uh, colleges. She just doesn't like the negative criticism that a lot of HBCUs get, and uh, she feels like she should, you know, take up for them. And we uh, we definitely will have her back again if she'll come back. Uh, before we get to our uh, Prince tribute, of sorts, Frank, I just wanted to real quick go over with you how uh, rich people have gotten a little nervous. And when I read this story, uh, my first thought, and it was no joke, my first thought was, wow, somebody's going to get killed. And basically, Britain's Prime Minister, uh, David Cameron, um, he he wants to do something about, you know, people hiding their money. You know, a lot of rich people hide their money in different companies and shell, different shell companies to avoid paying certain taxes. And there are, like, a plenty, there are plenty of companies that will help you do that, help you hide the money. But, uh, and I'm referring to the Panama Papers, uh, in case you're wondering, folks. With the Panama Papers, basically, it's revealing the depth that these people will go to to not only hide their money but remain anonymous so that you can't 
trace it, authorities can't trace it back to them. And one of the, the examples are these companies have it to where you can set up an email and make up your own name, and it will still link you to your money. And a couple of names that stood out, Frank, uh, were Harry Potter is one of the clients for one of these companies, Winnie the Pooh, and Daniel Radcliffe, mm. uh, who I think plays Harry Potter in the movie. That's correct. Um, I just, I, you know, what is Cameron thinking? Like, do you think he's being brave or – because, you know, when you mess with people money, like, like the great Lester Freeman on The Wire said, you know, you can follow drugs, you can follow all kind of things, but when you follow the money, you don't know what you're going to get. And when you go after people's money, a lot of times people are willing to kill for it. Um, so before we move on to the Prince tribute, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that real quick. I mean, that was very fascinating. I mean, I think um, it reminded me of movies. There's a movie called The International um, that, if you've ever seen that, Clive Owen is in it. Um, can't think of who else's star. It's worth watching. It's, it's a pretty good movie, but it, it kind of focuses on some things like that with a, with a world bank where there's money being kind of, uh, you know, funneled somewhere. But but I guess, I guess the point is, you know, this is nothing new. I think that Cameron is is uh, I don't know if the word is brave or foolhardy for what he's <laughs> doing because, you know, the idea that that rich people and their wealth. You can't. You're not. You're. They, they. They go through a lot of work to protect it, and it, in some ways, they will kill for it because it's. It's almost like they worship it. They almost worship their wealth. And I'm not here to get into listing. I'm just saying it from a technical standpoint. Like, there is a certain amount of trust they put behind their money. And like you said, when you start going after it, you don't know. You don't know what it's linked to. You don't know who is protecting what. What is what is going on. So, I think that. Uh, it's, 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 it's a worthy idea, but when you start going after rich and powerful people and what they do with their money, it's like, well, who, who, are, who is, my question is, who are you going to have on your side to go after these people? Because one thing to launch the investigation and ruffle up some feathers, but who's going to go through all the way? And then what charges are you going to levy once you find out who these people are? And if they're, you know, certain people, what are you going to do? You're going to only go after the small fish? You know, you're only going to go after the people that you know you can get, or you're going to go after everybody? So I think it's just a very tough situation. And so I'd just like to know what the end game would, would, would be. Is it to clean up all tax shelters or, how would you say, money laundering, whatever you want to say? Is, is it to stop that? Because that's as old as time. I mean, you talk about your love for Miami uh, and spending time down there, and obviously I went to the University of Miami, but we all know that that money used to be dirty, and now it's clean, and that's just how it is. It's like money. It just doesn't. Good luck, Mr. Cameron. That's all I can tell you. Miami's entire skyline was made with drug money. Um, this, this is a actually is a fascinating story. We're running up against time, folks. So what I'll do is I'm going to post a very in-depth story about it on our Facebook page. Just go to facebook.com/slash politically entertaining. And you, if you like, you can read the entire story on Panama Papers. It's it's a whole lot going on, and I think a lot of people are going to be nervous for a while. But we'll see where that goes. Um, before we end the show, Frank, as you know, Thursday, um, 
I, w- I think it's safe to say a musical icon, legend, passed away, Prince, at the age of 57. Um, it reminded me of Michael Jackson's death and the, the confusing of it. Like, someone said, hey, did you hear Prince just died? And then it was like, no, he's not dead. It's, he's still alive. He's just at the hospital. There was a lot of confusion until it was finally confirmed. Um, I was not the biggest Prince fan, but I did like his music. I appreciate you know how much he uh, meant to people. Uh, he actually, it was actually fascinating to see, you know, like the Superdome. They, I think they lit up uh, the purple lights around the dome. The Minnesota uh, bridge in Minnesota uh, had like purple lights. Senators Al Franken and Klobuchar of Minnesota, they, you know, gave speeches on the Senate floor about him. Um, what type of fan were you of his and? Uh, you know, how, how, did, how did you feel about him passing? I mean, like, you, I think you said it best. You said icon, legend. I think everybody knows, even if you didn't listen to a lot of Prince, how much he meant. For me, my experience, I have two older sisters. Um, and, and actually, my sister, Michelle Turner, Keith Levitt, who was on the show, and you can go back and listen to that interview on iTunes, Podbean, uh, Stitcher, or Google Play. Just type locally entertaining and look up um, that episode. You can find it. Um, she's a huge Prince fan. She has every CD that he ever had. I grew up, and I know a lot of Prince songs because she listened to Prince, and and he, you know, I was able to, you know, just understand, you know, as, as, when as a young younger child, it's hard to understand his genius. But as you get older, you're like, wow, this guy really is, is amazing. And one of the things that always stood out to me was his the, the first Batman, the soundtrack that he did for that was so amazing and. It's, it still is an amazing soundtrack now, and, and artists don't even really do that. You know, get on a soundtrack and just take it over. He did all those songs on that soundtrack, and it was amazing that he did that. And so that's one of the things that's I know that he, there's many other songs that he did, but that was just one of those things that, at the time, you know, watching Batman, every time I see that movie, I, I think about his his songs, you know, Bad Dance, you know, Scandalous, Lemon Crush, all those songs, Party Man, so, so many songs he created just for that movie. And it was part of that movie, and it was it was an amazing thing. He, he was that much of an artist that he was able to, you know, influence a, a huge movie at the time. Because that, you know, Batman people don't remember with Michael Keaton. Uh, you know, I know people remember the one with Christian Bale, but that was a huge deal at the time because superhero movies hadn't exactly been doing that great. I mean, this was you know eighty nine, ninety when this movie came out. So for that to have come off like that with the soundtrack, man, that was that was a humongous success. And, and Prince was just as much a part of that as. Um, Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson and Kim, ba- Kim Basinger, which, you know, was, was funny. I don't want to be funny, but I, I, I read a list and it said that Prince actually dated um, um, Kim Basinger, which was which was, blew my mind. Not that Prince didn't have the ladies, but it was just funny to me as well to read that. So, um, you know, certainly sad. Um, he's, an, you know, an icon, you know, as, as they always say, gone too soon. But, you know, Justin Timberlake said it best, his music will live on. And, and he has so many... And he's influenced so many people, and I think that, you know, it's just a matter of time before another artist maybe emerges like that. It might be, you know, we may have not seen the artist yet, but I do believe there's somebody on earth who he's touched, who's going to influence that's going to have a sound that we've never heard. And that's how music works, man. It goes like that. And so just, you know, rest rest in heaven, Prince, and uh, we all we all miss you, and, and, and we love your uh, music. And like I said, sad you're not here anymore. I, I mentioned that I wasn't the biggest fan. I am. I've been listening to his music now, talking to some friends who were huge fans, 
and I've been listening to a lot of his music over the last few days. I do remember growing up, for whatever reason, as a toddler, I had to uh, listen to Purple Rain every day before I went to uh, daycare. I can't explain why. I don't know why, but that's one of my memories, you know, growing up, having to hear that every morning. He was certainly a talented musician. I actually don't think there'll never be another. And what I mean by that is, the man played could play like 27 different instruments. Um, you took one of the points I was going to make, how he did the whole Batman soundtrack. I thought that was amazing. I mean, for the for the young people, Prince. Let me tell you something. Prince was a ladies' man. I mean, his nickname could have been Mr. Steal Your Girl. I mean, ladies love Prince. If you look on social media and look at their reactions, you can tell. And just real quick before we leave, Frank, a funny story I heard about him. He was in Los Angeles at a club one night, and it got to around 2 o'clock in the morning. And I guess Prince said, you know what, I'm sick of this. He had all the men that were in the club kicked out, and all the women stayed. So it was just him, his people, and all the women that were at the club. All the men had to go. You know, that, 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 that's the type of dude Prince was, man. Like, he, he had that kind of pull. And I'm sure, you know, after hearing of his passing this past Thursday, most of us went back and watched that Chappelle show skit with him. It was very funny. And um, like you say, man, just rest in heaven. Truly be missed. And, um... Uh, we're going to take you out uh, with, with some prints. Thank you for listening, folks. Again, subscribe to Podbean, iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher. Type in Politically Entertaining. Subscribe. The, ap- the episode will come automatically to your device. You can also visit politicallyentertaining.com. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Politically Entertaining, Twitter, at The Vocal Minority. Thank you again for listening, folks.